This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about entrepreneurship. More specifically, we're talking about how and when to know that it's time to stop what you've been doing and try something else, also known as a pivot. You'll often hear about companies and their founders who made the decision to pivot from their initial big idea that wasn't quite working right to something else that ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them. Take Facebook, for instance, which got its start as a silly website used by college kids to rate the attractiveness of their classmates to now being one of the most important information and communications platforms around the globe. Or maybe you've heard the story of Slack, the inner office communications platform that is almost ubiquitous across all companies within the tech landscape, but got its start as a side project within the companies working on making a video game you've likely never heard of called Glitch. And it wasn't until Stuart Butterfield, the co-founder of both companies, was almost out of money and preparing to approach his shareholders to return their remaining capital and shut down their operations that the idea to pursue the chat platform instead came to Stuart and his leadership team. These examples are obviously extreme cases where that seemingly small decision to pivot made a world of difference. But one of the best skills a person can have, both in life and in business, is knowing when it's the right time to pivot, persist, or pull the plug altogether. And while it may feel in the moment like calling it quits is your only option, in many cases, it may not even be your best option. It may be just time to pivot your business or your career rather than persist blindly in the face of opposition. And while I'm a big fan of the entrepreneur's journey and celebrating the triumphs that come along with them, I am by no means an expert on the topic. So I decided to call up someone I know who's living this very journey in real time and have a conversation. My guest, Donald Boone, is the founder and CEO of Boxed Up, a startup that allows creators to rent high-end cameras and production gear from trusted equipment owners across the country. Prior to founding Boxed Up, Donald has worked as an engineer for a couple of Fortune 100 companies and has also been a serial entrepreneur for much of his adult life. And perhaps the most important detail I can throw in there is he is also a graduate of my alma mater, North Carolina A&T State University. So with that brief introduction, welcome Donald Boone to the Tech Money Podcast. Hello, hello, Malcolm. How you doing, sir? I'm good, man. I appreciate you being here. So real quick, as I teed this thing up, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro there. 
what else should I have included? Two things, man. I think the first thing is probably the Aggie pride. I had to fight back the urge to jump in during that <laughs> intro and say Aggie pride. I talked to so few Aggies, at least in the tech and financial and podcasting space that I had to hold back my excitement. I think the only thing though, and I tie this in professionally, is the father of three and a husband. And I'm not sure if we'll get a, a chance to hit on those, but I'll honestly say, uh, and I, I saw this note on Twitter as well. So it's given me even more confidence confidence in this fact that honestly been being a spouse and mm-hmm. being a father has I, I feel has probably prepared me as much if not more than some of my other tech roles and teaching me empathy understanding baselines of communication human functionality and motivation at its base so that's the only thing I'd add is a spouse and husband as well yeah I, well I, I appreciate you bringing that up because for a completely different reason I myself know that whole entrepreneur's journey, trying to be a business owner through a pandemic and everything else, family life. I just have one, man. So the fact <laughs> that you're doing it with three is a, a totally different of complexity level and a lot more respect from my side. Yeah, you've got to be crazy to start a business. You've got to be crazy to have multiple kids. And um, I'm getting it from both sides. So I, I don't recommend it for anybody, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world uh, if I'm being honest. I mean, whether you're being honest or not, that's what you got to say. <laughs> you, you, you said it the right way. I'll let, I'll, hey, when I forward this to my wife, uh, yeah. I'm out of the doghouse. I'll stay out. Fair enough. Well, so listen, I actually want to start off this story from present day, and then we'll work our way backwards, actually, because your oh. professional life has included uh, a few big pivots. And so I want to paint the picture of where you are now, and then we'll kind of backtrack to how you got here. So, you know, let's talk about Boxed Up first. What do you do? Who do you do it for? How did it get started? Yeah, I mean, in Boxed Up is a lot to unpack, but in its most simplest form, we are a rental marketplace that connects content creators, professional content creators with equipment owners that are looking to monetize their equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, in simpler words, Airbnb for equipment. Yep. And the the vision from day one has always been for Boxed Up to be really, really huge and broad and really honestly meant to be the Amazon of rentals. But right now, it's really important for us to focus in, in the tech space they call it uh, a thimble or beachhead. And, and our beachhead is the pro AV audio uh, visual space um, where we're getting started. Um, and, and the answer to respond to the question and how we got started uh, it was really a combination of a lot of things. I think it's part luck. Uh, part blessing and vision that was sort of just hit me one day like a ton of bricks and also part lived experiences. Uh, I was living in Seattle. I'd relocated there to work at Amazon and I just had all this crap in our house. We had a really small house. So we were probably going to Goodwill and donating stuff left and right almost once a week. And I had a couple of drones, a couple of cameras. I thought I was going to start a 3D printing business. So I had those items in my home and I was fighting the urge and and kind of pushing back on my wife, like, I don't want to get rid of it quite yet. I'm sure I can make some use of it at some point, right? Um, I'm sure we've all been through that. And this idea popped in my head. Here I am sitting in the most successful marketplace ever at Amazon. I'm seeing how the sausage is made and I have all this stuff. And I thought, I'm sure someone would pay me money 
to borrow this for a couple of days or a mm. week or a month. And I don't have any use for it. It's just sitting here literally collecting dust. What if I threw together a, a website and posted it for rent and, and see if anyone would rent it if I delivered it to their door? Uh, lo and behold, uh, about 100 days later, a scrappy Squarespace page, people were renting stuff from Boxed Up. And, uh, and that was the initial inception. Wow. So rather than throw it in the trash, you decided to rent it to somebody else. And that was the inception of, no, there's a real business here. That was it, man. Stuff out of my house, uh, literally running everything from my living room and it's all in, in my office. We had a 1600 square foot home, two kids, a dog, my wife. We were both, uh, my wife was working for Microsoft at the time, still works for Microsoft, but we were, uh, we were capped at space and really was just looking for a way. Wasn't necessarily looking to kind of start the business, but once I, once it, it kind of caught hold of me, I really couldn't shake it. And I kept thinking about it more and more. So I just wanted to do a really small test through everything that I had up, invested a, a couple of thousand bucks just to see if it'll work before mm-hmm. I invested anything else in. And then it was sort of just one thing after another thing started to take off after that. Well, speaking of taking off, you guys have been blowing up recently. Like I, I saw you received funding from quite a few reputable firms recently. What was that fundraising process like? Yeah, it, it's it was tough, man. If, if I'm being honest, yeah. um, it, it was it was the hardest thing that I, I think that I've ever had to do. And, and I try to pride myself on being someone that'll take challenges or, or meet challenges head on. So, you know, being raised where I was, was raised and, and sort of came up was tough and, and navigating cha- challenges through life was tough. But I think the fundraising process, the reason why it's so tough is you have a couple of factors. You've got this public sort of factor where you're reading TechCrunch articles, mm-hmm. you're reading LinkedIn. It's hard to be a founder and not read and notice the news clippings. All right, this company raised $10 million pre-product. They haven't built the thing, but they raised $10 million. Yeah. These Zillow executives raised $40 million for an idea. So you're seeing all this money fly around and here I am with what I thought was a, a good business and a, a decent track record. I'm at Amazon. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm at Amazon. I, I coded the, the website myself, uh, taught myself how to code. This is the story. People will fund this story. Yeah. And I went out to pitch and it was crickets. And it really taught me a, a lot of things. The fundraising process humbles you, but it also enlightens you on a couple of areas that uh, may or or may not be sort of advantageous for the, the business long-term. And I, I think the one of the most difficult parts of fundraising and being a founder through that process, especially if you're strapped for cash is, how do I figure out if I just need to continue pressing forward and break through and, and fight this resistance? Mm-hmm. Or is this investor actually telling me something tangible about my business that actually needs to change and that can impact the long term? It's super hard. You get really emotional. But long story short, it took me about 11 months from my very first pitch uh, to the close of our announcement, um, we raised $2.3 million. And I did about 120 either cold emails, investor outreach, and I'd probably say about 50 live pitches before we got to the point where we were actually able to close our round. Wow. And I don't know that people really necessarily realize what it's like having to answer all the questions and give all the approvals and set the strategy and meet with investors and handle media inquiries and so forth and so on. On top of the actual work that you're doing to build the business or scale exactly. the product offering and everything else. And like, so you've got, you know, 
the job of going out and being a fundraiser and being the public face and telling the story over and over and knocking on doors and trying your best to to get people to buy into the vision. But then you also have to be finding time to do the work. And I think that was the biggest thing that I didn't realize is I wasn't treating fundraising as effectively a full-time job. And it, yeah. it kind of needed to be for, for what we were doing. Typically, companies will have one founder fundraise and another founder focus on doing the work. Well, I was a solo founder at the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, and during the day, I was packing up orders, shipping them out of my home. And by night, I was curating a list of VCs that I needed to talk to the next day. I'd set my email to send out these introduction cold pitches the next morning and then hope and pray I got some answers and then fill VC calls throughout the day. So it was, I mean, it was, it, it was the, the worst time. I uh, thought about quitting over and over again, uh, cried, got mad, got upset. I mean, every emotion you can imagine I went through during, you know, it, it took 11 months from sort of from beginning to end, but I'd say when I was, I was gunning 100%, probably just doing enough of the business to keep the lights on, probably about a, a grueling five month stretch where I was pitching probably five to 10 pitches a week or meetings a week and trying to run the business at the same time. I, I think it was that stretch that probably nearly took me out. Wow. On a, on a related, unrelated note, I, I saw you guys deck online. I saw TechCrunch covered uh, you guys in one of their pitch deck teardowns, right? Can I just ask why you would subject yourself to that level <laughs> of public scrutiny? Like, thankfully, in your case, they were very complimentary and constructive, but man, they come for people's necks sometimes. Well, that's the thing, right? Because honestly, at this point, it's... I love the going through the process because you come out on the other side. There's nothing anyone can tell me that either I haven't heard before or that I don't care about because mm-hmm. I know in order, by the time you get to the other side of the process, if, if your fundraising process is difficult, you've heard every objection, every reason that your company is not going to fail, every reason why you aren't the, you aren't the team, why you aren't the person, why you aren't the founder, why, why you may not have the right color to run the kind of business, any and everything that you can think of, I've already heard it. Mm-hmm. So scrutiny at this point is just like, hey, I don't really care. And, and I honestly, I, I kind of sort of take the same approach when we're going out and, you know, speaking or recruiting customers, because even then you'll face customers, in our case, both suppliers and customers who, who also don't 100% believe or may have some trepidations about what we're trying to build. And you recognize that, hey, everybody's not going to get on board. And whether that uh, person, whether that somebody be TechCrunch or a customer or investor, you sort of build up this sort of resistance and toughness to say, look, I don't care who it is, what their objection is. I am going to wield this company to success and I'm going to build the most immaculate team you've ever seen. And it's going to work. It's going to work regardless of what anyone says. So um, by the time it gets to TechCrunch, I honestly could, could, could really care less about uh, <laughs> who has something bad to say. And honestly, uh, you know, I, I get so many notes of people like, hey, thank you 
for being transparent. Thank you for sharing your story. So honestly, I, I do a lot of that stuff to help other people or help the the me who's just going through it with a different company in a different industry or in a different category. Yeah, you guys didn't rewrite it. You didn't redact anything. There weren't slides missing. I've seen all kind of like I, I'm I'm always on TechCrunch and I, I've seen all kind of you know shenanigans with people's decks when they know that they're going to be under public scrutiny instead of under the eyes only firewall yep. and people get get creative sometimes and so i was i was impressed and also just like why would a person even do this to themselves when you I know thought you about it I, you know. I honestly thought about taking some stuff out i said you know what it's more time more work just just send it send yeah. send the pdf and go on to the next thing it's like when pine tar was legal in baseball why would you not use just a little bit right it's just <laughs> right. It's, it's one of those but anyway but so i've i i, I want to stick there where you just were for a second and go a little deeper because i've watched your progression from the sidelines from the initial launch as a side project you're doing you know while working full-time at amazon to where you are now as a venture-backed startup with a staff you know, I understand that 2020 was particularly important to your story because you were forced to make a big pivot. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, there were two big things. And, you know, this is I'm, I'm sort of learning that everybody's journey is different. But this is a, a pretty big piece of our journey where uh, 2020 happens and we were finally starting. And I say we at the time, it was it was still just me uh, and a couple of uh, dollars from some friends and family. Um, but very early days of the business, we were finally starting to see some success. We were shipping some podcasting equipment, shipping some video equipment, some small things, not crazy numbers, but enough for, for me to pack some things up and send it out every day. And when the, the downturn and COVID hit, people stopped traveling. So mm -hmm. any sort of skew or product that I had that was even loosely associated with travel went to zero. All sales went to zero. I mean, it was it was quiet for months at a time when we were used to, I was at least used to sort of shipping out at least an order a week. And again, I'm not talking big business. It was still small, very small at the time. Yeah. And I had a decision to make. I, I contemplated like, all right, well, it was a good run. Maybe I shut it down. Maybe I just put this on ice. I've got a really good job. It's Kush. I'm making, and I, I write. I write. A, I've already written about this. So I'll say it. Say it openly. I was making 300 plus uh, k in total comp at the time. I, I was comfortable, and mm -hmm. I had no reason to continue. And I said, man, you know what? I, I really feel like I'm meant to be here but I got to do something because we're not making any money and it doesn't even make sense for me to spend any more time on this. And at the time we were still only shipping out products that we owned first party owned. We call it sort of one P yeah. um, in, in our business. And I said, I wonder if someone else has some equipment that they might list and we can actually open it up and test this sort of marketplace theory. I've been kind of selling it, fake it till you make it style, selling this marketplace concept, but it's really just all stuff coming from my home. Would anybody else list anything? And I said, well, I can't build it. I got to do all these things. Well, we're not doing anything. What if I taught myself to code? So I literally uh, made a schedule for myself, uh, looked up in YouTube, university, a couple of Python classes. And I spent three months every day, probably, you know, six to eight hours after my full time job was up and after the kids were asleep, teaching myself how to code. And I said, I'll, I'll wield it and I'll create the park 
the platform for other people, individuals to list their products on our platform and see if, if it'll work. And they did. And people started listing things. And that was probably the first thing that got us over the hump. The second thing was this concept of uh, high-end virtual events, broadcast, and productions. We were, everyone was home. Um, we've got the now sort of famous scenes and scenarios where people's wives are busting in the room and busting in the office while they're doing a hit on CNBC, MSNBC. <laughs> I forget what, what news channel it was, but that everybody was looks so bad. What, what, which was it? That was MSNBC, the oh, MSNBC. girl that came marching in there. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're referring to. Exactly. That's my biggest fear. Yeah, man. Pe people's video quality just looked so horrendous at the time. And we said, well, what if we packaged up some of the cameras that we have and sent it out? And lo and behold, uh, it really grabbed on and we got Afrotech and they needed mm -hmm. 20 uh, orders. And then we pitched NPR and their How I Built This Festival and they needed nearly 30 kits. Um, and then we go and talk to Amazon and say, oh, yeah, we, we need it as well. And it, it just little by little momentum started to pick up. And uh, I was busting at the seams. I, I couldn't I did not have enough inventory to keep up with the demands. I was swiping my credit card left and right just to try to keep up with it. Um, and the, the, the third party, uh, the individual equipment supplier side wasn't mature at the time. So it was really all on me to kind of figure it out. But the good news is it really forced us into this area where we've really got to figure out how to do this at scale. I can't do it all by myself. I, I need to build out a team. Mm -hmm. uh, and three, I actually think we might have a business that we can actually go out and raise some money on because now we've got momentum. Now we're actually growing. Now this looks a lot closer to a startup than just a, a, a guy with a crazy idea uh, to ship 3D printers around the country. But it sounds like that experience at Amazon helped you to see the opportunity in being the platform as well as the distrib distributor, since that's also the model they eventually pivoted to once they gained a foothold, you know, shipping books directly to folks' mailboxes way back when. There is zero percent chance that I start boxed up without having worked at Amazon. Yeah. Because working there at least opened up my eyes to say, wow, look how valuable this technology platform is. Amazon doesn't even own, they only own, people don't realize this, they only own about 40% of the products that they actually transact on the platform. Bezos talks about it freely, uh, so I'm not opening up any trade secrets here, mm -hmm. but they've showed the trend over time where, yeah, to your point, they were shipping out books. And then uh, and about last year, I think the numbers right around 59 or 60 percent of the products are actually third party products, either that Amazon fulfills or people ship directly from their warehouses. So I'm looking at this model and saying, there's no reason why I couldn't do this in the rental space. It's the exact same thing, except the product just has to come back. And uh, really working at Amazon, uh, I was in a, a role called a solution architect. Um, I was helping out developers at these third party companies integrate with Amazon's ERP system. So exchanging orders, uh, information, inventory information, pricing information back and forth uh, in milliseconds. So just seeing the scale of this thing and how it worked and how valuable it was and how honestly they call it network effects when a platform gets so large that every incremental skew customer makes it that much more powerful 
I, I said, I have to build something that's that powerful because every time on Amazon, another seller adds an offer or adds their price to a product that they're trying to sell. Other mm-hmm. sellers can see it and say, oh, shoot, they're a dollar less than us. How can we outbid them now? Mm-hmm. And then the same thing goes from customers. When more customers come on, there's a greater demand for said product. And now you've got this ferocious cycle that just grows and grows and spins faster and faster and faster. And the idea of doing that in an adjacent space that I thought was wide open uh, was extremely appealing to me. So as I mentioned before, right, box up was something you were doing, you know, on nights and weekends initially, but then you made, you know, that decision to make it your main thing. What made you ultimately decide to take that jump, you know, full time and leave the security of the Amazon paycheck and the, you know, perceived security, I guess I should say, that comes along with it, right? Because you you mentioned you were making a really good living and then all of a sudden, you know, you decide, no, I got to actually scratch this itch. And, and before you answer that, I should point out that the decision, the, the decision didn't just affect you, right? You mentioned at the top of this, you're a family man. There's plenty else to consider in that decision. So what made you ultimately decide, you know, I got to do this? There, there were a number of, of things. Uh, nothing happens in a vacuum. Kind of, kind of like this entire experience. I, I'd say the first thing was once COVID injected our business with some momentum. It was the first time where it felt too much to handle. Where hmm. I, I was having to take a hard thirty-minute, sixty-minute break for lunch and pack up orders and ship them out. Yeah. So I started to think. What if I did this from the, the second I woke up? How much more business could I get? And then as a part of pulling the Blavity Afrotech, I'll give her a shout out. Morgan DeBond mm-hmm. um, pinged me while I was helping her set up her camera equipment for Afrotech Virtual. And she said, hey, have you started fundraising yet? And I said, no, not yet. You know, I'm thinking about it. And she's like, you need to do it but you need to quit your job. Hmm. And I said, man, you know, I, I don't think I'm ready. I got a family, um, but, but maybe one day I'll, I'll definitely do it. And then a, a few months later, literally about a month later, I got the news that my father-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Wow. And we found out right after Thanksgiving by January 1st of the next year, he was gone. Wow. And it was in that moment that it, it really hit me. I said, man, life is so short. He mm-hmm. retired an accountant at Michelin. He was an auditor there, worked in an amazing life. And uh, he, he did take his time to travel and enjoy. Um, but to see him pass just years after his retirement, I just kept thinking to myself, man, like, what if that happens to me? What if yeah. I, I spend my entire career putting my entrepreneurial dreams on the back burner? Uh, just to focus on the nine to five. They don't love me. If I leave, if, if I pull over and, and die, uh, they're just going to replace me with a, a, a job posting the next day. And I looked at my wife and said, you know, hey, I, I know this is tough. This is the possibly the worst time for us to do this. Oh, by the way, we're expecting our third child in a <laughs> couple of months. But if I don't do it now, I don't know when I'll ever do it again. And, and I think this is our window to actually try to pull this off. And I promise to you, if this doesn't work, I won't I won't start any more businesses, at least for a few years. Uh, she's like, all right, this is your last one, though. This, yeah. Just know that. Uh, and I said, all right, deal. And um, we, we put the plan in motion and relocate back to the, the East Coast. And uh, a few weeks later, I was given my notice at Amazon. It was scary, scary as hell. But uh, I'm, I'm happy I did it. 
I have had the pleasure of having conversation with Morgan in the past, so I know what kind of pep talk you got. Uh, she was actually <laughs> a guest on the previous podcast I did before this one, Manage Your Damn Money, and she was one of our very early guests. And like the way she gets people in her orbit fired up around taking action and, and you know going after it, I, I completely understand how she kind of pushed you off that cliff. Yep. Um, and I, I asked that question because it was perhaps, you know, the biggest pivot of all to decide to walk out of the door and, you know, go start your own thing without much of a safety net. But that does, you know, kind of help to paint the picture for, you know, why it suddenly was an immediate thing for you when you just had this smack in the face, unfortunately, reminder of mm -hmm. just how, you know, how short it all is. But did you manage to make any major, you know, financial preparations before making the jump into full-time entrepreneurship or was it just more or less, you know, hold your breath and we're going to pray together. Am I cheating if I say both? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it, it definitely was both. It was a lot of prayer, a lot of nights in, in deep thought, but there was some financial preparation for sure. I mean, once you have the amount of people that are looking to you and that you're beholden to and responsible for, you definitely have to make some 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 plans. So I, I knew that I was going to leave probably about nine months before I actually left. And then mm -hmm. at that point, it was really just a matter of getting my leave, my vacation, and for, for those that aren't aware, in tech, a large portion of your compensation is actually tied up in stocks. Um, they call them restricted stock units, mm -hmm. um, but you'll vest them. So you'll have, in, at, the, at the time, every six months, I was due pretty much a windfall of new uh, shares that were mine. So I, I waited for my next big vest. And then a few weeks later, I was out on pat leave. And the second, the day I came back from pat leave, I scheduled... A, uh, a meeting with my manager and let them know. But that's even one that I hear often is holding people back where it's like, you know, I got, you know, two, two more years worth of RSUs that have yet to vest. And then when those vest, I I'm going to do it. I I'm going to. And then all of a sudden you get your next retention bonus that was larger than the first. And right. That's obviously yep. why they call it the golden handcuff. That's it that's the whole that's the whole goal. So the fact that, you know, even being able to walk away from however many shares, you know, you ultimately had left as your your shares you had to forfeit. That's one of the things that keeps people, uh, keeps people stuck. But so, you know, you, you, you jump from Am Amazon engineer to founder, right. As I mentioned. And then, as I said before, you very quickly after doing so, you have to pivot to focus your, your attention from shipping equipment yourself out of your house to also being the platform and allowing equipment owners to list their stuff, uh, their drones and cameras and such for rent on your site. But before that, I understand you had already tried your hand at entrepreneurship at least once before back in 2015. And I'm saying once before, but you said your wife said this is the last one, which tells me there's probably <laughs> two or three more in there that I don't even know about. But what made you willing to give this thing another go? Yeah. When, when you're an entrepreneur, uh, there's this concept of like, are you born with it or can you learn some of these things, skill sets? And I honestly do think that a lot of entrepreneurship is being born with it. Um, in, in high school, I, I was doing entrepreneurial things. I just didn't know. I was burning CDs and selling them, burning them on, downloading them on LimeWire and, and, and selling albums. I was bagging up Costco candy and, and selling that until the school shut me down. Mm -hmm. So I was always doing something. And, and I knew 
I, I was a hustler at the time, but I wasn't yet an entrepreneur. And then I always thought I'd be able to just stick it on the side and say, I will make my money at a nine to five. I worked at a company called ExxonMobil, Fortune mm-hmm. One at the time while I was there. And I just thought entrepreneurship was going to be this thing on the side. And when I launched my initial startup back in 2015, you know, I thought the same thing and I thought maybe, maybe this will, this will be my time. But when that failed, I realized a, that I needed to learn, but B, I think more so I realized that it actually wasn't the idea. It was just the Mm -hmm. execution and my ideas were good. And I constantly saw almost every idea that I'd write down in my, my notebook, my little black book of right now, my iPhones folder, it came into fruition. Someone did it. Someone took action on it. Someone took the idea and made it a, a real world solution. Um, and I, I got sick of it. I, honestly, it would make me sick to my stomach every time I, I came across a company or an idea that I had or that I brainstormed and that I never took action on. Things like WeWork. It was, mm-hmm. uh, I was brainstorming with a friend of mine, Matt Green, who you probably know. We called mm-hmm. it Hotspot. And we were working on it because we didn't have anywhere to work because we were working on our next company. And we were going to make this thing called Hotspot. And lo and behold, a few years later, WeWork does what it does. And, you know, Adam Newman is already on to his second company, even after kind of the debacle of what it turned out to be. But I say all that to say the ideas were there. um, The motivation was there. I just needed to figure out how to keep going through the obstacles and kind of navigate and circumventing those to success. But that time you decided to throw in the towel and say, forget it. Right. But, you know, in 2020, you decided to push through and make a big pivot, you know, that to find the the eventual success that you guys are are enjoying now. Do you have a process for determining, you know, when to hold them and when to fold them? uh, Or is it just a gut feeling completely? Yeah, there's, there's definitely an art and a science. I I think at the, at the crux of it, you know, and, and, and entrepreneurs know, but it is, I think the things that make great entrepreneurs great is they are eternal optimists. Mm-hmm. And I even tell my team this all the time is, hey guys, you will have to reel me in because I'll think we'll be able to get everything done on time um, ahead of time, actually. And there's a bit of you that even if the, the situation looks extremely bleak and the normal person would just say, hey, why are you even spending your time on this? The entrepreneur will look at that and say, oh, look, there's a glimmer of hope. Someone <laughs> at our website today, we need to keep going. And you got to balance that out with, with the realization. But um, I did, I brainstormed on it a, a bit more when I moved to Seattle and Uber Eats was just absolutely killing it. DoorDash. And, I, you know, the time away from it at least made me take a step back and kind of survey the landscape and actually really kind of, you know, get comfortable with the fact that the, um, the business, it was called Olio, wouldn't would ever actually come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, though, whenever I travel or in a restaurant or I'm traveling, um, I look around. It's like, man, I wish I had that app that I was working on that one day. And, and you know, honestly it's that small glimmer of hope that makes me come back. And it's like, all right, the next one, I'm just not going to stop. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I hate that feeling. That feeling is worse than spending time and it not working. The, the feeling of hope or possibilities that never came to fruition. Well, on that end, what advice do you have for anybody you know, listening to this? Who's torn, you know, trying to decide whether to pursue their big idea full time, or maybe even a, a fellow founder who is at, at that crossroads trying to decide, you know, whether to push through a current roadblock or pivot to something else, or maybe even shut it down altogether. For the entrepreneur considering whether or not they need to make the jump, best advice I have is do it scared. Hmm. Do it scared. I like um, that. 
I was listening to a, a podcast with Carrie Champion and Dan Labatard, and and mm-hmm. she was leaving uh, faced with the decision to leave ESPN at the time, and she said to was scared, and it, that stuck with me. And I, I think you'll feel terrified. I felt terrified prior to giving notice at Amazon, even though I made my decision, I made all the plans in the world. It was still terrifying to actually call someone up and say, Hey, I don't want your, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm actually <laughs> going to go broke. I, I have a se- severe pay cut. I make less than six figures now. Um, and I'm going to do it scared. And so that's what I'd say to the person on the fence, um, to the person who's just looking to press through it. Honestly, it's oftentimes at like your wits in at your lowest point that you come out on, on the other side and there's no magic bullet. Sometimes things just actually don't work. Um, but I, I subscribe to sort of the concept of um, giving up is way harder than trying. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The, the great Kanye West said that. Um, that was pre-Kim Kanye. That's it was, was pre <laughs> To me, giving up is way harder than trying. Um, he, he, it, 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 it sticks with me still to this day. I mean, giving up is just so much harder than like actually pushing through. And when you get to a point when, when you can't do it anymore and you're tired and you're exhausted, everybody does, then you throw in the towel, but, but not without going down, um, you know, with the head bloodied, bloody, but unbowed yeah. as I would say. So, well, my last question to you, I appreciate you being so generous with your time, by the way, because I can hear the team is packing up and shipping out orders in the background <laughs> as we, even as we record this. So I'm thankful nobody's come and, and, and tapped you and, and asked you to jump in. But my last question actually has absolutely nothing to do with you know equipment rental or being a founder at all. So you can kind of sit back in your seat and relax your shoulders a little bit for this one. But let's right. say for a moment, this big idea never hit you. So you had to occupy your days a different way but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all, what do you think you'd be doing right now? Does it have to be a business? No, man. It's whatever you want to do. This is your, this is your free time. Snowboarding. I'd be snowboarding. I absolutely, absolutely love snowboarding. And I often joke with myself. Sometimes I'll be cranking away or packing up boxes, as you can hear in the background, or talking to customers or facing um, some, some sort of obstacle. I say, why am I even doing this? This is just hard for no reason. And I, whenever I go either on vacation, either it be on the beach. Um, I love beaches, but I, I love the thrill ride of snowboarding. Whenever I go to the mountains and I just see these snowboard instructors, they look like they're having so much <laughs> fun. And I just ask myself, why the hell Am I sitting here trying to run this impossible business? I should yeah. just be snowboarding and teaching people how to snowboard every day. Um, they're smiling. They look young. They're having fun. Um, so that's what I would do. I, I would just throw in the towel. I'd be somewhere in somewhere in like Denver or Colorado somewhere or somewhere in Vail, just just snowboarding and, and living, living the life, man. Um, I'll answer that for you. I had somebody uh, once upon a time make me an offer to be a ski instructor. There you go. Uh, now that I know what ski instructors get get paid, I, I know why you do what you do. <laughs> um, but, exactly. Uh, I'll say on that on that note, man, I, I really appreciate you making the time to do this. This has been great. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Boxed Up after this goes live? 
Without a doubt. Um, so we're launching the V2, uh, the next version. This is our We Got Money version. So don't judge our current website. <laughs> um, but the, the We Got Money version comes out in October of this year. It's tryboxedup.com, T-R-Y-B-O-X-E-D-U-P.com. Boxedup.com wasn't available, so I had to do tryboxedup. Um, and then also I'm, I'm one who, who gives out my email pretty regularly. So Donald at tryboxedup.com. If you needed to contact me or, or hit me up, uh, directly at boxed up, happy, um, to answer emails as well. Awesome. Well, on that note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? I would be happy to boy. What a great interview. Um, Boone, I appreciate you being here. Uh, Malcolm, thank you so much for bringing him on. I can tell you right now that if you were a snowboard instructor, I can see you'd be the guy that would be just like, no, go off that cliff. Got it. You, you got this job because <laughs> only way to learn. risk, risk taking, <laughs> risk taking bone in your body. So, um, no, I, I would appreciate that. I would love some instruction on that at some point. Again, Malcolm, thank you so much for bringing him on the show. This is a excellent interview. Of course, our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at tech-money.com. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.